A good Thursday to you. It's May 12th. This is Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson, your host, John Hicks, riding shotgun, the technical producer of the show. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. There's a lot of news. We got a lot to talk about today. Some some tragic and infuriating stuff. Palestinian American uh, journalist, Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abdu Akli killed yesterday uh, while reporting on uh, from the occupied West Bank city of Jenin. And we're going to get into some of the details on that, what her colleagues are saying, what people that were with her are saying about what happened and who, uh, in the words of Al Jazeera, targeted and deliberately killed this Palestinian journalist. We want to get to that, plus some of the criticisms around how that killing is being reported, most especially in the Western world as well, by allies of Israel. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, the federal NDP leader, harassed in Peterborough. We're going to talk a bit about that, some of the vitriol that politicians, especially people of color, Face And, of course, the conservative leadership debate, the first official English debate going down in our home city of Edmonton last night. We're going to take a quick look at that. We're going to talk to Chris Boozy today. Chris is the founder of Bot Sentinel. Uh, He's going to talk to us about battling bots and trolls on Twitter. He's got his own take on whether or not that Elon Musk sale is going to go through. And we're going to take a look at what municipalities in our home province of Alberta are working on behind the scenes right now. There's been a lot of talk about EMS coverage, ambulance and first response coverage across the province. And of course, uh, the spotlight has shone on some real problems with regards to response times, coordination, budgets and the like. There's been a lot of talk about a provincial police force happening. We'll get into that. These are some of the stories that fly under the radar. The second half of our show today, we're going to follow up on some of that. We lead off today with a story of Canadians doing amazing stuff in Ukraine. That in just a second, how Ukrainian troops, Ukrainian citizens are being outfitted with some of the items, the non-lethal items that they need as this war continues, this attack, Russia against Ukraine. Uh, We'll talk to the founder of St. Javelin about this very unique social enterprise in just a second. I want to begin by reminding you this show happens because we have the support of sponsors like Bitcoin. Well, if you're in the cryptocurrency space right now, if you know anything about Bitcoin, you know right now that the price is down big time. It's a story that people are following as we take a look at tech stocks, markets down as well. People trying to figure out, are there lines to draw between all of them? Some of you figuring out if if I do hold Bitcoin right now, if I do hold cryptocurrency, is now a time to sell? Should I get out before it hits the floor? Others wondering, is this just a really great time to buy? Now, we never tell you whether or not you should buy or sell Bitcoin, but I do recommend if you have questions, you look to the team led by Benny at Bitcoin Well under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. So through the show today, we'll be covering the news of the day, so to speak. There's a lot happening. There's always a lot happening, but it just feels like a busy Thursday, And we're going to have you covered by the end of this next hour or so. We want you to be able to confidently uh, talk to your friends on the sidelines of your kids soccer game or whatever it is and know what you're talking about. And most importantly, know why these stories matter. Uh, We wanted to touch down right now and, and kick off our show an opportunity to check in with somebody who's got five or ten spare minutes in his day, uh, and the days are probably busier now than ever before for Christian Boris, who left his job at an early age. I mean, this is pre-IPO Shopify. This guy's been in the digital space for a long time, marketing space for a long time, uh, spent five years as a foreign correspondent in Kiev. 
before founding the company Black Hawk Digital, a creative agency based out of Toronto. Now, when Russia attacked Ukraine a short while ago, Christian created St. Javelin, and you can see it online at stjavelin.com. Uh, being described as the defining cultural phenomenon of the war, it's raised to date more than $2 million U.S. dollars for the defense of Ukraine. And Christian and his team at St. Javelin now looking to turn it into a sustainable social enterprise where all production of their products happen in Ukraine and all employees are Ukrainian, displaced, diaspora or otherwise. Christian, kind enough to join us live on the show this morning. Thanks for making time for us and welcome to Real Talk. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. You've got a really interesting perspective on this. You've got experience in marketing. You've got experience in the digital space, but you've also worked as a journalist. Uh, you're a Ukrainian, Polish, Canadian yourself. So this, in a way, pretty personal to you, it sounds like. Yeah, my life just kind of all the things I've ever done just kind of came together in a, in a, in a crazy way. And um, when I started this St. Javelin thing, uh, you know, I had no real crazy goal. I, I, I thought, you know, maybe we would get to like five hundred dollars or something like that. I literally just took a meme that I'd seen online in some group chats that I was in with uh, other journalists because uh, I spent 2014 to 2018 in Ukraine. And, and you know, I, I was on the front lines. I covered the war. I, I worked with BBC, Vice, um, Global, uh, different organizations like that. And, and I knew what was about to come uh, just from the conversations that I was having with, with friends of mine from my you know past life. Uh, so I just printed this meme as a sticker. I put it on a website. I launched it, you know, like like in 30 minutes with very little thought. And it just it exploded. It it really became like somebody called it the cultural phenomenon of the war. I think people just were trying to find ways to support Ukraine. And we actually uh, we started February 15th around then. So we existed before the war actually started. So I think that was a large reason why um, so many people flocked to it and it became so popular. And it's still it's still crazy to see every day how it grows like that. Uh, that's President Zelensky getting one of our shirts from the Minister of Defense, who I got to meet in Ukraine a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So you've, you've got this this individual, President Zelensky, that, that I think has I don't know what the, the right word to use. It feels tacky to say he's captivated the world. But I mean, his his story, his rise or his entry into politics is is remarkable. And the influence that he has on the global community as well. Uh, absolutely stunning. Uh, we've seen a, a news release that was just out. It was embargoed and we could just now talk about it. Your brand um, partnering St. Javelin partnering with the Ukrainian World Congress, which has already raised um, at last tally that I saw more than 20 million dollars to assist Ukraine. And, and a lot of this unite with Ukraine campaign fundraising and activity uh, we're hearing about has allowed the Ukrainian World Congress to deliver, you know, more than 11,000 pieces of body armor, uh, 8,000 armored helmets, you know, almost 2000 bulletproof vests, tourniquets, bandages, gas masks, night vision uh, drones. I mean, all of these types of things that that you might take for granted, you might not realize that you, Ukrainians are in desperate need of as they defend their country from Russia. This is a big deal and 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 almost citizen led, certainly citizen funded. Did you ever see yourself? I mean, doing something like this, did you always suspect that that you'd have some connection? Uh, whereas, regardless of where it was in the world, you could apply your talents uh, to assist people in dire need. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I always wanted to find my way back to to doing, you know, a, a, as a journalist, it's fulfilling work because you get to tell people stories, right? But you don't help them financially. Um, I always in my in the back of my head, I wanted to find a way where I could help financially because I was able to see when I worked as a journalist how much that financial support can, you know, what it can actually achieve, right? So. Um, I just feel incredibly grateful that we've built this thing that just keeps on motoring every day and keeps on generating money that we can send to Ukraine. And the impetus for us to partner with UWC, with Ukraine, Ukrainian World Congress, is I was in Poland and I was in Ukraine and I saw how effective what they are doing is. Um, there's a lot of different organizations on the ground in Ukraine and in Poland that are trying to get different things into the country. Um, but these guys are have been able to put $20 million worth of support into the country. So um, for us, honestly, it became a full-time job just trying to figure out what do we do with all the money? Where do we spend it? Part of the reason why I went to Ukraine was to figure out what do we do with this money? Who are the right organizations on the ground to give this money to? Um, so we donated half a million dollars previously to Help Us Help, which which is a registered Canadian charity. Um, and then we started donating to Ukrainian organizations like Red Cross Ukraine, which is different than ICRC. Um, and that was because a friend of mine who he's the guy who took most of the pictures in Mariupol, his name's uh, Evgeny Maloletka. He's the guy who literally turned the calculation in the West of, of most leaders to say, hey, we need to support this war because he's the guy who took the photos of um, the maternity hospital being bombed and those pregnant women um, you know, leaving the hospital in, yeah. in which was just rubble. So he told me donate to Red Cross Ukraine. Other friends told me what to donate to. And um, and then seeing what Ukraine World Congress is able to do, we just said, OK, let's work with these guys going forward so that we can focus on what we do best and they're going to do what they do best. All right. So, Christian, people people can get involved. Someone's going to hear this on the podcast. They'll see it on YouTube and they'll go, well, what can I do? This is something that I'd love to participate in. Is it as simple as going to St. Javelin com and essentially going shopping i mean i'm looking right now at the selection you've got the lineup with saint javelin the protector of ukraine people can pick up vinyl stickers and, and t-shirts and so on patches and and even a saint javelin ukrainian inspired flag saint javelin.com is where you want to sending people yeah yeah they can they can buy whatever they they can show that they can they can literally wear their support and they know that the money's going to um to help people in ukraine um, there's a lot of copycats and stuff like that on Etsy, on Amazon. This is the only site that we have. This is the uh, official one. Okay. Uh, Christian, I commend you on this. It's, it's really is remarkable. And I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to talk about sort of cultural phenomenons around war, uh, but war is constantly changing and evolving and, 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 and not just what back in the day may have been described as the art of war or how war happens, but also how people respond and how people can show their support. And this is making it uh, nice and easy and making a tangible impact. So nicely done on that. Thanks for making time for us on the show today. Congratulations, I guess we might say, on this partnership with Ukrainian World Congress. It's a big deal. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for, for having me. You bet. That's Christian Boris, who's the creator and CEO of St. Javelin. 
Again, it's spelled just like it sounds. You can check out stjavelin.com online. Uh, we expect to speak with Christopher Boozy in just a second. He's the founder of Bot Sentinel, and he's got a really interesting perspective on this Elon Musk Twitter purchase. We've been waiting to talk to Christopher for, for, for a couple of weeks now, hence uh, his appearance on today's show. But there's a lot of other things going on in the news as well. So we're going to be jumping around a bit. If I know anything about this audience, you're going to be up for it. We'll update you on the conservative leadership race and, of course, this, this tragedy, this infuriating circumstance uh, in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin yesterday. It was the Palestinian American Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abdu Akleh that succumbed uh, to a gunshot when she was shot in the head. And uh, a couple other journalists injured as well, including Ali Samudi. And we'll get you an update on that story coming up. This show happens because we have the support of sponsors like Free. 16 locations across the province of Alberta. Friesen Brothers invites you this time of year to heat up the grill. They've been supplying family picnics, family gatherings. They know that great family gatherings happen around great food. And the warm weather's back. Friesen Brothers invites you to celebrate by enjoying items you can heat up on the grill. Whether that's real Alberta beef, pork, chicken, turkey, or other protein options, you can check it all and find it at 16 locations, Friesen Brothers across the province of Alberta for more than 65 years, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. If you're on your way out of town, if you're lucky enough to be heading somewhere hot, maybe you've blown the dust off your golf clubs, maybe you're going to be feeling the sand between your toes in just a couple of days, you're going to want to book your parking at the EIA, Edmonton International Airport, ahead of time. That's Jet Set Airport Parking. Now at JetSetParking.com, if you use the promo code REALTALK, you're going to be able to park for just $7 a day. There's no strings attached. $7 a day airport parking at EIA. If you register ahead of time at JetSetParking.com with the promo code REALTALK, book your spot, set it up, Take the shuttle to the departures gate. When you arrive back, take the shuttle back to your vehicle. It's that simple with Jet Set Parking. Our friends at Eden Landscaping, this time of year, they're getting ready to start bringing outdoor spaces to life. Now, the process has been underway for some time now with some of their clients as their team led by Mike, have been taking your dreams, taking the pictures you've ripped out of magazines, taking your Pinterest pages and and drafting them into a plan that will maximize your space. They're really big on this urban butterfly yard approach in front yards where more and more people are leaving the lawnmowers out of the mix. They're supporting nature's pollinators. I love the conversation yesterday about that with our science podcasters, insects and pollinators. You can learn more about what the future of landscaping looks like with Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. Christopher Boozy is the founder of Bot Sentinel. If you're not familiar with it, you're about to be. It's a fascinating web resource that allows you to understand which accounts may or may not be, can I say, legit. Uh, in other words, are accounts propped up by bots? Uh, is their engagement online legitimate or not? How are so-called bots influencing political discussion in the world today? And how could Twitter change with the advent of Elon Musk's influence? Heck, is Elon Musk even going to buy Twitter in the first place anyway? Well, Christopher Boozy doesn't think so. The founder of Bot Sentinel joining us live this morning, making his Real Talk debut. Thanks for making time for us and welcome to the show. It's good to see you. 
Hi, Ryan. How are you? Doing Good to be great. here. Hey, Christopher, when we talk about bots and trolls, it's not the same thing, is it? I mean, when we think of trolls, oftentimes we know exactly who the person is. They're just trolling. That's the verb. How do you define a bot? Right. So a bot is more or less an automated account, you know, an account that is controlled by some type of code software. Um, so it's it's not really human controlled. It's automatic. It could be you know artificial intelligence or a set of scripts and things like that. And a troll is a human. You know, it's a person who goes online specifically to cause chaos or to target someone, harass someone, things of that nature. So one of the reasons we've been paying a ton of attention uh, to your Twitter account, and most especially over the past couple of weeks, because you and your team have been providing really valuable insights into what's been happening on Twitter, trends that have been developing on Twitter since the rumors started that Elon Musk might be buying the social media platform. Generally speaking, for folks that haven't been following you, what have you been noticing in the context of bots since this announcement? Right. So initially, when he it was confirmed that he would be moving forward with purchasing uh, the platform, we noticed almost instantly accounts shutting down. Um, and when we looked further into the data, it was left-leaning accounts, accounts that for whatever reason, decided that they did not want to be on a platform that was controlled by Elon Musk. But uh, at the same time, we noticed a significant number of newly created accounts um, following uh, right-wing personalities or politicians. Um, and we're talking you know, several hundred thousand accounts within a few days. Uh, so you know, left-leaning, like you know, Barack Obama, uh, uh, AOC, Nancy Pelosi, they noticed a significant decline in followers and people like Matt Gates, uh, Tucker Carlson, um, you know, pretty much everyone on the right saw a significant increase in followers. Yeah, I think I saw that, that Ron DeSantis had, had added something like 400,000 followers. It was pretty significant, wasn't it? It, 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 was, it was a significant number and over a short span of time. So ultimately, uh, so we, what does that tell you? I mean, what do you read into that? Right. So you know, Twitter released a statement and said it was organic. Um, we did not agree with that assessment. And the reason why we didn't agree with that assessment, because many of these accounts um, as soon as they started following these individuals, um, started you know pushing out pretty much propaganda and uh, false narratives, um, you know COVID-related stuff that's just not true, election-related stuff, um, and we're talking something like five or six hundred tweets within a day or so. Christopher, that's, sorry, I, I didn't mean to step on your toes there, interrupt you. I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you, and, and interestingly enough, so we do a question of the week with our audience and we get, you know, hundreds of people respond every week and we ask them, you know, in this case, this past question, whether or not they think the Twitter sales actually going to go through what they think the ultimate impact is going to be. And, and, and we'll get into that after we talk to you, we're going to really get into the data. But I will say there's a significant number of people that do not believe that this sale is going to go through and you've been on the record and I want to get to a couple of your tweets in a second, but you've been on the record. You don't think this thing's actually happening. Do you, you think that the share price is going to be driven down and, and maybe the whole thing will go poof. Right. Well, you know, Tesla, you know, last time I checked, it was actually up a bit 
uh, today, but it's been going down for the last, you know, two weeks or more. Um, and the reason behind that is, um, you know, obviously markets are down in general, um, but the shareholders, uh, you know, investors, they're not confident that Elon could, um, you know, run Tesla, SpaceX, and now Twitter as well. And then you also have these loans that are pretty much secure, uh, you know, secured by the Tesla shares. So if they go down, um, there could be a margin call on that and he would be forced to sell his Tesla shares. So I personally don't think the deal is going to go through because there's just so many hurdles now. You know, you have the FTC, the SEC investigating him. You have Twitter shareholders suing him. I think it was a, a police pension fund or something like that that are suing him. They, they don't want him to move forward in, for at least three years. Um, and then there's the funding part of it. It's not he, he doesn't still have uh, he still has not secured the funding yet. Christopher, I wanted to take a look at something you tweeted out the other day. Let's assume that the sale does go through. Uh, you tweeted from at CBoozy. That's your official account. Elon Musk hasn't taken control of Twitter yet. However, the news of him buying Twitter has emboldened the worst accounts. You say, here's a preview of what you can expect from a Musk-owned Twitter, and then you shared a whole bunch of examples, which which I haven't added. And then, Johnny, just jump me ahead to the next one. Not this one here, but the next one. There was a follow-up to Chris's tweet where you say, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, transphobia were already a significant problem on this platform, and the Elon Musk news has exacerbated the problem. Now, the fact that this is coming from you, the founder of Bot Sentinel, who has a pretty clear understanding of bots and troll activity on the site, is going to grab the attention of more people than just the average person making the same anecdotal assessment. What evidence are you seeing or what trends are you seeing uh, th that have you putting that out there from your blue check mark account? Right. So once again, we noticed almost right away, these new accounts that came in started and I, I posted the examples, but I can understand why you didn't want to show them here um, with these newly created accounts using the most vile, you know, language, you know, anti-Semitic stuff, um, you know, calling women the, the worst things you can call women. It's like they felt like they were free to just be themselves, you know, as you could say. Um, and that was just a brief example. And now, once again, these were the newly created accounts. Look, this stuff happens on Twitter all the time. And I'm not saying that Elon Musk is the reason why you know, there's anti-Semitism and racism and homophobia on Twitter, not at all. However, there are folks who believe because he's going to be owning the platform that they can say whatever they want. I, I, we literally have tweets and examples of people saying because Elon is now owning the platform or will own the platform form, that uh, they are allowed to say whatever they want. And, you know, they were using the foul language while praising Elon in, in the same tweet. Um, so, yeah, that, that's a, just a small example of what we expect. And just one more thing for your listeners and slash viewers. Um, I went on the record before he even announced that he was moving forward. This is when he was just on the board, you know, saying that he's going to have you know, more, more shares and a, a larger role. And I had you know, went on the record and said that by him even you know, having that type of control, that it would be bad for democracy. Because, and the reason why I said that, and some people thought I was like, you know, they were saying like, what? Um, 
you know, if you allow people just to say whatever they want on a platform, whether it be election-related stuff, you know, we just had here in the United States a hotly contested presidential election where there are still folks who don't believe that uh, Joe Biden is the legitimate president of the United States. So if you have people on the platform who have blue check marks saying this type of defamatory stuff and, um, you know, I shouldn't say defamatory, but, um, you know, things that are contrary to, to reality, um, you're going to have a problem, whether it's here in the United States, in Brazil, we start, we're we seeing this now, or in, in Europe. So you have to have, you know, moderation, you know, especially when there are people who have, you know, a few million followers. So when people are putting stuff that are just, just completely, you know, false, that there's some checks and balances on that. Chris, for the for the benefit of people that are watching us right now, I want to do this live. And Johnny, I can just share my screen with you here. Uh, but we'll get to that tweet in just a second. But check this out at botsentinel.com. Chris, can you explain to us uh, how this works? I mean, how people can utilize your site. There's this this dashboard people can navigate. You do have problematic accounts noted and people can go through that. That's a free resource. People can check out what's trending online. Uh, and then there's ways to get scores. Uh, this green button here allows us to analyze an account. Um, so, so I don't know if I put mine up or if we want to analyze somebody else's account, but I think that it would work in real time for people. It would be beneficial for people to see how this actually works. Right. So you know, that is for people who are just, you know, analyzing an account or two or they're you know, looking at the data, whether it be researchers or journalists. However, um, we do have several tools uh, that makes it a lot uh, easier. Um, so, for example, there's the Bot Sentinel um, Chrome extension, um, uh, Firefox extension, where if you're using the web version of um, Twitter, it will show you the scores in real time. So if you're engaging with people and they have a disruptive or problematic rating, you know to avoid those accounts more or less. So it's a way, um, to, it's a way to kind of figure out, like, who am I dealing with here? Exactly. It, absolutely. And then there is also our... Uh, iOS app you know, for Apple's uh, products and then also Android. And once again, it works exactly like you know you would use you know regular your regular Twitter app, but you see our ratings um, under each um, you know account. Okay, so I, I, uh, I I'm rated at four percent, Chris. What does that mean? Am I four percent? It puts me in the normal range. Um, that just goes to show what I have normal Twitter activity. Right. So it, it, so what it, what it's showing, you're not really engaging in what we consider, you know, disruptive or problematic activity. And how we gauge that is pretty much off of uh, Twitter's terms of service, you know, their policies, their rules. So that's our guideline. It's not, you know, what we believe. And that was the problem when I first created the service, um, you know, coming up with something that's guiding this 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 technology. Because my view of what may be problematic or disruptive may not be, you know, your rights. Um, so by using their guidelines, using their policy, that you know, that was the you know what, what we used to train the the model. It's fascinating uh, stuff, and I and I really recommend that people use it. It gives you a good sense, and you can just poke and dig around on the site, and and you learn more 
uh, the more that you do it at BotSentinel.com. Christopher, I've got you here and you're stateside. You know, you're an American neighbor of ours. And so I want to ask you, and you've been tweeting about uh, the Supreme Court's, uh, whether you want to call it the leaked decision or whatever it is, Justice Samuel Alito's um, papers that, that indicate that the court may be looking and probably is looking at overturning the historic, the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling. And, and you tweeted this. And I want to ask you about this before we thank you for your time today. Uh, you said that you believe that it's going to have major political implications. You know, you, you say that overturning Roe v. Wade will galvanize women, especially young women and women of color uh, and, and, and people that are calling your take laughable. Uh, you think that Republicans just lost the midterms, that Democrats will hold the House and the Senate because of Roe v. Wade. You say if you think this is laughable, we'll see later this year. You say first abortion rights, then gay marriage, then civil rights. We're going backwards. How are you wrapping your mind around everything you're seeing? Um, I think I think I'm correct. I think I think. Um, well, here's the reason why, um, and I laid it out in the tweets. Um, you know, after Trump was elected, we we saw this, right? We saw women being galvanized, you know, people of color, um, and ultimately Democrats uh, took took over the House, eventually the Senate, the presidency. Um, you really didn't have that going into the midterm. So it was looking as if the Republicans would pretty much, you know, take over the House and probably the Senate as well. Um, you know, there's there's no more Trump per se. By this being leaked, um, this is giving folks a reason to go out and vote uh, this, you know, this midterm is coming up. And I don't think, because the Republicans, uh, let's be realistic here, don't really have a message. You know, they don't have a cohesive message. It's just, oh, you know, we're better than the Democrats. They're not really offering anything tangible at this point. So, uh, you know, this leak has given Democrats and independents a reason now to go out and vote because, you know, rights are on the line. Um, we, we know for a fact that once this is, and I shouldn't say we know for a fact, I shouldn't say that. We, we have, uh, you know, we can reasonably believe that um, once this goes through, that the next thing will be, for example, contraceptives. Um, they'll start going after that. Uh, then, you know, they'll start targeting the gay community, you know, going after gay rights, whether it's same-sex marriage or God knows what. Um, so, you know, this is just the first step. So I just think people have to understand that um, and not just sit on the sidelines and say, OK, look, I voted for Biden. I did my part and understand this, this is an ongoing process. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just don't think people really realize. I mean, what I mean, like the posters and stuff like that, that this is going to have a profound effect on the midterms moving forward. I've been uh, fascinated uh, for quite some time now following you, uh, how you take the data available to you and how you turn it into uh, interpretation of political events. I like that you make bold predictions on your account, and, and I've enjoyed the follow. It's been great to have you here on the show, Christopher, and I hope that you pick up a few follows. I suspect you might after joining us here on Real Talk. Thanks for this. Thank you for inviting me. You got it. That's Christopher Boozy. He's the founder of Bot Sentinel. You can check it out. It's really interesting stuff at BotSentinel.com. Uh, some cool comments, some, some insight here. I mean, Corey's watching us live, says prying eyes uh, from people who made burner accounts to monitor my presence was my cue to step back from social media and not bring on unnecessary problems. Corey says I have a LinkedIn profile, but that's about it. 
Lauren says, for every action, there's a reaction. Says 99% of my comments on Twitter are, are not political, mostly positive, so I seem to have no problems there. Bradley, my Twitter account is tame. My anonymous one, less so. I wonder how many people have burner accounts. The average Twitter user, how many of them have, have like their, here's my name, here's my photo, and then, oh yeah, here's my side account for when I need to say something I really mean. I, I think it's pretty sad because I know it's pretty prevalent. And like you were talking about yesterday, I've seen so many people, I don't want to name names, but people that I, like, not huge, but I was like, wow, when they when they accidentally tweet from that burner they account and they get called out. And I'm like, I would have never thought that person needed that side to yeah, release well, hate. You know what I mean? It's and usually it's when they think like, they're on their burner account. Yeah. But then they tweet from the legit account. Exactly. Yeah, and you're like, ooh. Or reverse. Like, if they're a professional, like uh, we were talking about on The Hedge yesterday, hedgepod.com, <laughs> with Andrew Walker, uh, a, a writer, a sports writer who had a burner account and would just rag on other writers. And uh, he released uh, basically a link to one of his pieces on the burner account. And people, imme- it was only up for a few seconds, but... Twitter wow. immediately knew what was going on. So. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh, we're going to be talking municipal politics in, in less than 10 minutes time. We've got to talk uh, international stories. A journalist killed a reporting from the West Bank yesterday. The conservative leadership debate went down in our home city of Edmonton. Uh, we're talking Twitter. We're talking Elon Musk. It was the subject matter of our most recent question of the week presented by our research and strategy partners at Y Station. Why don't we take a, a quick look, Johnny, at some of the data provided there? And we sure appreciate the work by the team at Y Station. Of the hundreds of you who responded, we asked you, will the sale of Twitter to Elon Musk actually go through? 38% of you, so you know, just over a third, between a third and a half, uh, say respondents say, yes, uh, Elon is extremely serious about this. 38%, 31 of you say, no, it's just a big troll. Uh, so uh, you know, just just under a third of you don't think it's going to happen. Eighty-five percent of respondents, an overwhelming majority, say Twitter will not improve with Elon Musk as the owner, either because the platform's problems are already too deep, Musk is too deluded, or because his vision will make the app unsafe for millions of people. That's an interesting angle on it. On the question of why Elon wants to buy Twitter, more than half of you, 53% of you, think it's because he wants to control the communication space for his own business and personal interests. About 53% of you said that. And here's another takeaway. This is one that caught our eye. 62% of respondents think it's because it gives him access to a massive existing and current data set that could also benefit his personal interests. Yeah, that's quite likely, I would say. Almost six out of 10 of you, 59% of respondents say you're going to wait and see if you're going to stay on Twitter or not. Uh, if Elon takes over, you're still going to just wait and see. Now, we always ask you, you know, in this case, by the way, on this case, of whether or not the sale will actually go through. 21% of you did say, yeah, everybody who is holding Twitter stock will get paid one in five and 12% say the shareholders are going to reject this. Just under or just over one in 10. Now, we always ask you if you have anything else to add to the conversation. If you have anything else to say, one of the questions, uh, what would be a better use of $44 billion? Uh, one of you say, uh, and Earmuffs kids, it's his money. He earned it. He can buy whatever the fuck he wants with it. Another one of you said, I don't know, he could pay his taxes. He could pay his employees better. One said a massive Elon Musk statue would be a less wasteful way to provide him with validation. At least it would create jobs. And my personal favorite of those responses, you could give everyone in the world five bucks. We asked 
anything else? Final comments. One of you said, you know, a lot of government agencies are using Twitter to communicate public safety messages. Elon Musk is proposing charging those agencies for this use. It's clear that he cares nothing for the health and well-being of the general public. Another one of you says, my mind can't go to where Elon's mind goes, so I don't know his end game, and I think he's headed for a big end game. Our question of the week this week, we ask you to chime in at ryanjesperson.com. You just click on the connect link. It's nice and easy. You'll find the question of the week there. And of course, we're asking you about that other thing we just talked to Chris Boozy about, the Supreme Court decision. It looks like they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. What will it mean on Canada, uh, politically and otherwise, on Canadians? Um, What's the role of men in these conversations and policymaking? And of course, when it comes to Canada-U.S. relations, what impact could this have as well? We'll ask you to respond by Sunday, 3 p.m. Mountain Time, but why wait till then? Go ahead and answer that question of the week today. We'd appreciate it. In just a second, we'll get to international news. I want to remind you that Northwest Fest is running through till the end of the week. My brother, Kyle, I've told you before, he lives in Vancouver. He works in harm reduction. He called me last night. Johnny Kyle and I typically text He called me last night. He was walking out of the world premiere at Doxa on the West Coast of that film Love in the Time of Fentanyl. We talked to the filmmakers. We talked to a a couple of the, do I say the stars of the show? The people featured in the film. Heart-wrenching. You could hear in my brother's voice yesterday. He just goes, he he, he goes, I didn't know what the film was going to be. I didn't know if it was going to be kind of a law and order style, you know, 3.08 p.m. Another overdose. You know, they (laughs) respond. He marveled at the masterful storytelling. And this is his space. This is what he does. He said, I can't believe what a good job they did on that film. He said, you've got to make sure that theater is packed on Friday night. I said, I'm going to try to communicate your passion and your response to Real Talkers tomorrow morning. So this is me doing that. Friday, May 13th. That's tomorrow at the Metro Cinema. Love in the Time of Fentanyl. It's one of the final films screening at this year's edition of Northwest Fest. But you still have an opportunity to catch a few more. The full lineup. Tickets available at northwestfest.ca. I implore you. If you want to learn more, understand more, walk a mile in the shoes of people that are dealing with and impacted by Canada's opioid crisis on a daily basis, you must see that film. That goes tomorrow night at Northwest Fest. Our friends at Park Power, I was lucky. Lucky enough to run into the CEO, the founder of Park Power, Chris Kozowski, yesterday at Nate at the Innovation Center. Yeah, we were talking about innovation. And there was Chris uh, in the audience with his signature bow tie. You can see it on their Instagram account. Unbelievable guy and a visionary. And I love it because he's the face of the company that's providing friendly local utility service to people across the province in the business of electricity, natural gas and Internet. This is the company that wants you to save money. That's why they're bundling services. It's why they've got a promo code, 2022-REALTALK, that's going to shoot you $70 back off your first bill. And they've got those fixed rate options that you may want to look at, especially with fluctuating rates right now. No joke. Well, this is news that has certainly made its way around the world. Uh, The unacceptable, deplorable, horrific and heart wrenching killing of a Palestinian American journalist an Al Jazeera correspondent for more than 25 years. Uh, She's been trusted her reporting in particular from the Middle East, Shireen Abdu Akhle. And we can show you this video. This is released by the Associated Press yesterday. It shows the scenario where Ms. Abdu Akhle lost her life, where she was killed in an Israeli raid. She was covering a raid in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin. She was not the only journalist that Al Jazeera says was, quote, targeted 
and in her case, killed deliberately. You can see here that uh, the reporters on the scene are blaming Israeli forces. Uh, Israel at the early stages claiming that it may have been Palestinian gunmen, and that was quickly refuted. Ali Samoudi is another Palestinian journalist shot in the back. This Palestinian journalist, Thatha Hanchanea, says at first... Uh, says she crawled. We tried to move to another area. Shireen started to scream that Ali was injured. Remember, he was shot in the back. Uh, this journalist says she and I stood next to a wall and started moving slowly. I protected myself by standing next to a tree. She fell on the ground immediately. She says each time we tried to reach her, the occupation, the Israeli forces kept shooting. The shooting didn't stop despite the injuries of Ali and Shireen. This is a journalist talking, by the way. She says the occupation forces intentionally kept firing shots. I can clearly say it was an assassination attempt. 51-year-old journalist Abdu Akleh began working for Al Jazeera back in 1997, regularly reporting from Palestinian territories, and her killing has uh, brought outraged and, uh, outrage and condemnation from around the world. I wanted to show you what some, in particular, what some journalists are saying, and then I want to quickly touch on as well what some are calling the whitewashing uh, and the reporting of this killing. Uh, Peter Beinart, uh, who's uh, done a lot of commentary out of Israel, says even in Israel, even those Palestinians who hold citizenship are second-class citizens. Uh, and if President Biden does not investigate Shireen Abdullah's death and hold those who killed her accountable, it will show that this is true in the United States as well. The Committee to Protect Journalists tweeted yesterday, we are shocked and strongly condemn the killing of prominent Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abdu-Akli in the West Bank while doing her job and while clearly identified as a journalist. We call for an immediate and thorough investigation into her killing. And on a side note, a lot of people are saying whoever does this investigation, that's very significant. Who does not do the investigation, equally as significant. Bell True is a correspondent, says this is absolutely devastating and concerning news. She says an independent, thorough investigation must be launched immediately. Perpetrators held to account. Uh, journalism is not a crime. Journalists are not targeted or not targets. Rather, Shireen was a veteran correspondent. Her loss is immense. And Al Jazeera English uh, announcing uh, or reminding, let me say, the world that since they launched in 1996, 12 of their journalists have been killed in the line of duty. Twelve of them. Uh, that is... Uh, Shireen Abdu Akhle. Now, there's been huge criticism, and you can see it online. If if you just go to and I'll refer you to aljazeera.com, Western media in particular, uh, and Western politicians, for that matter, have been slammed for their coverage of this killing, asserting uh, Al Jazeera media outlets ignored Israel's role in Abdu Akhle's death, according to social media users and commentators. And if you read this online, and you can find it really anywhere, I mean, the New York Times yesterday describing how a Palestinian journalist died at 51. You know, people are saying dies at 51, says Bassam Kawaja. Dies at 51 is a really strange way to say a journalist was shot in the head, right? The New York Times facing criticism there and, and ultimately correcting its reporting, um, you know, saying that, you know, had, they had quoted Al Jazeera as, uh, you know, suggesting the journalist was killed during clashes between Israeli forces and Palestinian gunmen. The clarification from the New York Times account yesterday saying an earlier tweet misstated Al Jazeera's comments. The network said she was killed by Israeli forces in the West Bank. You know, it's it, it, it's it's the idea here of the allies at play. It's the idea of what's described as whitewashing in reporting. Right. Aim Raby on Twitter says, you know, the Associated Press, for example, yesterday, we just showed you their footage. 
reporting that iconic Palestinian journalist Shireen Abdu-Akli was killed by gunfire is unethical journalism. She was not killed by aliens. She was killed by Israeli forces. There should be repercussions for propagating alternative facts about basic truths. It's reminding us about so many of the factors that come into play. It reminds us how the public needs to be tuned in and hold to account media sources. It reminds us as correspondents and as talk show hosts where the attention or the focus needs to be and how we maintain our objectivity. Generally speaking, as a storyteller, a journalist killed in action is always a tragedy. A journalist targeted by forces and assassinated is a whole other level, and we'll continue to follow this story as it develops. Safe to say, millions of people infuriated and or mourning around the world today. A little later on in this show, we're going to talk to you about that conservative leadership race last night. I want to bring you in particular one exchange. It was a banger. You know the one I'm going to talk about. (sighs) Everybody knows the exchange I'm going to talk about. You forgot about this. You forgot about this. It was was the NHL playoffs of debates last night. Yeah, and then people are going, well, some of the candidates maybe appeared a little bit more prime ministerial, but are they... Are they seeding ground here? Are they are they losing uh, opportunities to capture people's attention by being perhaps too placated or being too chill? I mean, you can see even I can see it and I'm not a political pundit or anything. But, yeah, some of them are like, you know, Puliev obviously right out there barking at everyone and and Leslie Lewis as well. But, uh, yeah, the other three. Uh, just kind of in the background. You know what I mean? You need to be a little louder. Uh, Sheree, though, I, I think he's a very smart man. He's very calm and he delivers his message very clearly, but uh, just got rung through the ringer last night. So I like it. You're like, I'm not really a political guy. And then you go nail on the head, nail on the head, <laughs> nail on the head, Johnny Hicks. I love it. We're going to talk municipal politics first, and that's in just a second. But I want to remind you first about what Infinity Healthcare is doing. We know that this is an audience full of engaged people. This is an audience of people that are aware of what's going around them. And, and, and in particular, we see signs every single week that this is an empathetic audience. You care about people around you, most particularly your loved ones. And perhaps you're in a situation or a scenario where one of your loved ones just isn't getting the home care they need. Either you're not happy with their current provider. Maybe you're having a difficult time navigating the Alberta Health Services home care delivery process. Maybe you're at that stage where the family's having discussions about whether or not it's possible to age in place. You know, is it time to go into assisted living or not? Oftentimes, as humans, we want to age in place for as long as we can. We want to grow old in the house that brings us those wonderful and familiar memories. That's why a home care provider you can trust, a home care provider that's consistent and that respects some of your specific needs is so important. This is exactly what Infinity Healthcare does. And you can learn more about their personality matching service at infinity-8.ca. Our friends at Kubi Energy want to remind you that they are hiring right now. I mean, I can almost go on the record. I said to, to Jake, their CEO, I said, can I, can I say with confidence that you're always hiring? And he goes, I mean, the way things are going right now, uh, that's accurate. But in particular, right now, they're hiring a lead structural engineer as well as multiple electrician positions. Uh, maybe you're hearing this from the interior of BC. Maybe you'd love to live in a place like Kamloops and have quick access to the lakes this summer. Maybe you're in Alberta 
uh, professional and, and you'd love to work out of Edmonton and do solar installations across the prairies and into Saskatchewan. Maybe you're an apprentice. Maybe you've got your ticket. Maybe you don't have any of the certification yet, but you're a great team player and you'd love to join a team like Kubi. You can check out their opportunities under the careers link today at kubienergy.ca. We'll talk federal politics in a few minutes, but right now we want to turn our attention to, the, to that balance. Uh, oftentimes the, the relationship and oftentimes uh, potentially the, the strained structure that exists when it comes to municipal and provincial politics. There's a lot of stories that don't make the headlines, but that doesn't mean that things aren't happening in the communities that you and I call home. We figured in partnership with Alberta municipalities, this would be a great opportunity to check in on some of the work that's being done in the areas that matter most to people. Health, first response, EMS, ambulances, policing, and otherwise. Things like funding that impact your home communities. The work continues with elected officials like these next three mayors we're going to check in with, and I'm grateful that they've agreed to make time for us today. Uh, Her Worship Kathy Heron is the president of Alberta Municipalities. She was re-elected mayor of the city of St. Albert for a second term just this past fall. She was elected president of Alberta Municipalities shortly after that in November of 2021. She prides herself on a collaborative approach to leading and governing She believes that her home city of St. Albert is going to thrive only if the region and the province survives. Her Worship Janet Jabush is the two-term mayor of the town of Mayor Thorpe, uh, just about an hour northwest of us here in Edmonton. Her priorities are sustainable economic development and advocacy. She describes that the conversations and the work with regional and provincial stakeholders as always front of mind and wrapping out our mayor's panel this morning uh her worship trina jones who joins us the mayor of the town of legal uh, she was elected to her fourth term on legal's town council back in 2021 uh, her goal enhanced collaboration through strong communication and dedication to the job to the three of you mayors thanks so much for making time for us welcome to the show uh mayor Heron, welcome back it's nice to see you here we wanted to get is it fair to say when we talk about these issues um we'll talk about policing today we'll talk about healthcare and first response today uh these are some of the most important issues to people but the way that the news cycle works they're not always front of mind they're not always leading the headlines and for a lot of folks they might not realize exactly what's going on Agree. Excuse me. Um, you know, listening to your introduction to talking federal politics and, and there's a lot to talk about in that in that level of government. But of course, the three of us sitting here today are obviously extremely passionate and um, in love with the level of government that we represent. And quite often it's because it is nonpartisan and we can work together and we can, you know, can strive to find that consensus with our colleagues and with our province and with the federal government. So yeah, there's lots to do and our, our level of government is hitting you um, every day. That's what I generally say. It's whether your grocery or your garbage is picked up or whether your taps turn on. It's everyday stuff that we are governing and influencing. 
Mayor Jabrish, I wanted to ask you first, when we're going to talk about policing, and, and there's been a lot of conversation in the province of Alberta right now about a provincial police force and, and, and whether or not that's a good fit and whether or not that makes sense uh, for Alberta, fiscally, um, from a service delivery standpoint or otherwise. And and, and and I have to ask, I mean, you you represent, you, you're a public servant in a town that will forever be tied to the legacy of the RCMP, uh, the statues of four officers who fell in the line of duty stands in Mayor Thorpe. Can you describe the connection that your town has to the RCMP and how that may influence people's perspectives on the, the viability or the need for a provincial police force? Uh, well, thanks for that question, Ryan. You're right. This town is forever connected to the legacy of the RCMP um, in, a, in a sad sort of a fashion. Um, the people in my community and the surrounding area are, are all in on the RCMP. I haven't talked to anyone that sees any kind of value in not having the RCMP be uh, the, the police force that, that looks after us in this neck of the woods. Um, the, the, the piece that ties us so directly is, of course, those four officers, Constable Sheeman, Myrill, um, uh, geez, isn't that, uh, Johnston, and, um, uh, oh, help me, somebody, I've forgotten the other one. <laughs> Put on the spot and I, and I, and I lose my mind. Myrill, Sheeman, uh, Johnston, and Anthony Gordon. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, we've got four larger than life statues here in town and and they're visited by people from across the country and around the world. So I think the the larger population understands what a deep connection this community has. And, and we mark that anniversary every year and on the milestones like the 5, 10, 15 years. The turnout there is amazing, Ryan. We see uniforms from all different um, kinds of first responders, fire, EMS, RCMP is always there in, in red surge. You know, it's, it's, it's not something this community ever sets aside. It's, it's front and center for us all the time. And so I wanted to, to, and I appreciate you taking that question. I, w I wanted to, to establish the fact that your town, your community does have a connection uh, to the RCMP. And I think that a reasonable person would also suggest that I, I don't think it's disrespectful uh, to, to note that just because there is this history tied to Marathorpe and to these four men who lost their lives in the line of duty doesn't mean we can't discuss changing the formula for policing. It doesn't mean we can't discuss changing the structure, but I'm sure that it would impact some people's perspectives uh, on the RCMP to a certain degree, emotionally or otherwise. Now, when it comes to actual service delivery, when it comes to actual issues that are faced by your community today in 2022, what's the perspective that you might have on whether or not a change in the structure of policing could benefit Mayor Thorpe and surrounding communities? Well, the thing that we've been asking around the Alberta Municipalities board table almost from the beginning of this is what is the exact problem the province is trying to solve by doing this? And we haven't gotten an answer to that yet. The level of service we receive from our local RCMP detachment is great. Um, you know, there's never enough boots on the ground anywhere because 
people don't get a 30 second response to a call to the RCMP. So it's a perception thing that there are not enough boots on the ground and that response times aren't fast enough. But I can tell you in our town, the response times from our local RCMP detachment have been improving year over year all along. And the other thing that our RCMP detachment is, our RCMP detachment um, patrols a huge area and it includes the Alexis First Nation east of us down Highway 43. And every time they get dispatched out there, it's a 30 minute drive just to get out there. They got to deal with what they're dealing with. And then they're 30 minutes back to Mayorthorpe. So it's not just my town. They're, they've got a huge area that they patrol. But you're right, Ryan. It doesn't mean we can't have this conversation. Not everything in that PricewaterhouseCoopers report is bad. There mm. are some good things in there, and we've acknowledged that. There, there are some, some workable things in there, but why can't that stuff be applied to the RCMP? I should why, can't, why can't that stuff be be? implemented with the current police force that we have. Hmm. Yeah, I want to note that Mayor Jay Bush is also the director of Alberta Municipalities for Towns West. Um, and, and Mayor Jones out of Legal is the director of Alberta Municipalities Towns East. Uh, Mayor Jones, same perspective in Legal. I would I would imagine, I mean, if, if we talk to, to people, we do our best to check in with Canadians across the country and in particular, um, in rural communities where response times, RCMP response times, sometimes you'll, you'll we've heard from landowners, we've heard from farmers uh, that'll say there's there, there, there's suspicious activity happening or there's an active B and E happening, and and you know officers will arrive within two hours, like forty five minutes is a pretty good response time. What's the reality in Legal right now, and and as your constituents? debate or discuss, you know, RCMP versus the provincial police force, where have you seen those conversations moving? Uh, where are people focused? I think people are focused on the response times. As Janet mentioned, uh, we're in the Sturgeon County detachment, uh, which is stationed in Warrenville. So they have a very, very large detachment area as well, including four towns, uh, the entire county and a First Nation. So responding to those places it can be quite difficult. The Morville detachment does only have uh, about 13 officers in the detachment that have to respond to that. So on any given shift, they may have only four or five officers ready to go. What that creates is they have to triage calls. And if they're dealing with a domestic disturbance in Morville or in the county, your B&E has to take kind of a, a back seat. So they have implemented initiatives. They have joined with us. They have consulted with us. Uh, our staff sergeant is an amazing guy uh, and he's actually initiated a number of things and a number of public education initiatives that say, yes, you're going to get a call back. You're going to get a response, but it may not be an officer in your farmyard within 20 minutes um, after you report a stolen car. It, it is difficult on the RCMP uh, and it is difficult for our constituents to, to understand that, but the RCMP does respond and, and they've done a very good job at improving that. However, our, our, our people do expect that response time and a service level increase. I think it's probably also important to recognize, and, and I don't mean to be uh, cynical, but realistic is my goal, that simply replacing 
a national police force like the RCMP with a provincial police force would not immediately solve these problems, right? It doesn't immediately mean that the town of Legal, like Mayor, how many people, how many people are in Legal? We're sitting at roughly 1,300 people. 1,300 people. So, so you're not getting 24 officers and 15 new Alberta Provincial Police squad cars and a brand new uh, 15,000 square foot detachment the minute that this provincial police force comes in, right? Like what would be a reasonable expectation? What are you trying to remind your constituents? I think a reasonable expectation should the government uh, decide to transition. I think we have to expect what we pay for. Um, If we expect 24 hour service officers in town, fully, a fully functional detachment in town, it is going to fall on our taxpayers. It is going to fall on us to pay those expenses. With the new police costing model that the government put into effect in 2020, we are now already paying uh, an additional $24,000 for 2021. This year it jumps to 36,000. And what that has ensured is an extra civilian uh, person in the Morville detachment to take some of that administrative pressure off the officers, but it also gained us an extra officer in that detachment. If uh, the town of Legal expects uh, a, a full functional detachment, which I'm guessing based on you know personnel and vacations and time off and shift schedules, it's going to cost us a lot more. And uh, I hope uh, that should the government decide to go that way, that that education piece is there for our residents. Brenda's watching us live. She says, how much would this cost Alberta anyway? And for for perspective, uh, the cost of policing in Alberta, RCMP and sheriffs right now is estimated at just under $800 million a year. That PricewaterhouseCooper report that we're hearing about uh, was reported on back in October of 2021. It suggests that it could, a provincial police force, cost Albertans $200 million more annually Uh, cities and the province than what we're currently spending it would also come with a 366 million dollar it's estimated 366 million dollar price tag for a transition that could take up to six years mayor heron you're in an interesting position it's not unprecedented there are some lower mainland cities and and some other cities across canada but but you've got what 70 75,000 people in saint albert something like that And, and there's no saint albert police service your city is patrolled and policed by the RCMP, it would qualify as a bigger city, certainly a relatively big city that's policed by the RCMP. What, how, how does that influence or impact your perspective on the viability, the need, or, or any sort of the justification behind an Alberta P- Provincial Police Service? Right back to justification. Uh, there, there's a question that still has yet to be answered. What are we trying to solve? St. Albert has 70. Thank you for the 75, but we're on 70,000 people. Okay, yeah. Uh, we have about 70 officers in our detachment, and we have the choice. That, that this, is, this is key to the discussion. Right now, uh, I have the choice as a, as a mid-sized city whether I want to have a municipal police force or whether I want to contract to the RCMP. Uh, Alberta Provincial Policing would take that choice away from me. Uh, your viewer asked the question um, about the cost, and you're right, it's about $360 million just to transition, and our, our association really honestly believes that's an underestimate. When Surrey transitioned uh, from RCMP over to a municipal police force, they um, their, their numbers have been very accurate except for the um, IT system, and, and the, the provincial proposal, again, does not include IT, so, you know, it will be more expensive, that's our opinion. 
And then uh, there's there's federal money that is being lost. And, and this is, it's so interesting hearing our current government um, talk about equalization across Canada, yet they're willing to turn away, you know, a, a, almost $200 million in, in federal funds to help offset the cost of policing. And that $200 million plus the 360 in transition will be picked up, not just by those of us that are policed by RCMP, it will be picked up by all of Alberta. So that means Edmonton and Calgary, although have nothing to do with this conversation, are going to be paying the bill of this of this decision. So that's very concerning to us. And, and I think the other point is the proposal doesn't actually have many more officers on the streets. I think there's maybe a couple hundred more. It's across Alberta, it, it's very minor. And the, there's always the question, they have split these officers into level one and level two. So instead of having 3,000 RCMP officers with guns on their hips, we might only have 1,500. So there's so many unanswered questions. And, you know, after months and months of really frustrating uh, consultation with the province, those answers are still not forthcoming. Mayor Heron, I want to stick with you for a second. You're the president of of Alberta municipalities, and and I'll get the other two mayors, your colleagues, to respond to this as well. But it's no secret that uh, EMS, that emergency medical response, in particular paramedics, paramedic firefighters across the province have been experiencing uh, major difficulties, as have the communities that they serve. Um, It's been asserted from political leaders um, and people within the public service that the centralized EMS dispatch is not working well, uh, that ambulances are oftentimes slow to respond. Uh, that EMS service has been intermittent and that emergency medical personnel are are certainly experiencing exhaustion and burnout. We get anonymous and on the record comments from paramedics that are saying just exactly that. What's Alberta municipalities been doing about this? What have you been doing about it over the past number of months? This is, this is, this is my life right now. It is all consuming. Uh, At our convention in November, we had three separate resolutions all related to, uh, ambulance and response times. One was a third party review of the dispatch. Uh, you know, one was just a review of the whole system. And then really important was one that was focused on the mental health of those of us that are sorry, those of them that are serving um, as paramedics, medical first responders, even the firefighters, they're, they're responding to these calls and they're at risk. And so you get a system that is spiraling out of control where you can't retain uh, paramedics, you can't attract them. Um, we've got ambulances that cannot be staffed. So it's not just the dispatch part of the of the system, it's an entire systemic issue with ambulance. I, I, I do like to um, recognize the provincial government though when they do do something and they are. I just said do-do, I hate doing that. <laughs> but they have responded with a, what are they calling it? The provincial um, EMS advisory committee. And when Alberta municipalities was asked to sit on this committee, I threw my hand up in the air as fast as I could because I've so, I've always been so passionate about this this issue. So this committee is now made up of myself, um, the president of the Rural Municipality Association, because they they're right with us in our advocacy. Um, it's made up of union reps, firefighters, uh, Alberta Health Services, and the, and the nice thing about this committee is it's actually being mandated by the ministry and not Alberta Health, Alberta Health Services. So it's got some high level um, power behind it. And are already immediately we're seeing improvements. So I do like to recognize when change is good. So they came up with a 10 point plan, adding more ambulances, which was in the provincial budget, doing their best to attract and recruit. They are addressing the dispatch. They are working on mental health. 
And then our committee is coming up with ideas. One of the biggest issues is you get an ambulance and you arrive at the emergency department in any hospital in Alberta. And, and if the emergency department is full, then you can, the ambulance sits in, in the bay with the patient until they can actually discharge them into the emergency room. And that could be hours. So we've got a you know fully trained two paramedics sitting in, in a hallway with their truck in, in the bay. It's, it's a waste of resources. So we are addressing coming up with some of these ideas. But this isn't an, um, a paramedic or, or EMS issue. It's an Alberta health systemic issue across the board. I'm sure Tr uh, Trina and Janet could probably speak to um, lack of family doctors in their communities. And when you don't have a family doctor, quite often you call 911. And so an ambulance shows up to help you with a bleeding nose. And is that the right use of our resources? Are you seeing that in, in Mayor Thorpe, Mayor J. Bush? Uh, certainly. Um, Want to have a conversation about rural broadband? Because you all just froze up on me. So oh no! Oh no! Have that conversation too. <laughs> you know what? That is that is a that is a fair comment. We we want this to be a show where we can pivot quickly, and this is real life reiterating <laughs> to us that there are always issues to be addressed and always things that'll happen. To to get you up to speed, to be fair to you, Mayor uh, Mayor Heron was just talking about you know with regards to EMS coverage. Uh, there's also things like family doctor shortages that are impacting communities. We were talking bigger picture about this Alberta EMS Provincial Advisory Committee that's been formed. And I think that the average person that calls Alberta home, regardless of, of which way you vote or regardless of which party you might support or which politician is your favorite, you're going to be happy, I think, to hear that people are cooperating and making progress on an issue that's impacting everybody. But what is the, the, the health-related challenges, whether that's EMS response, family doctor shortages, and the like? What's really at the top of your list of priorities as mayor of Mayorthorpe? Um, we don't, in Mayorthorpe, we don't technically have a doctor shortage right now. We've got a, a lady doctor coming from out of the country who uh, is ready to, to come to work here. Uh, the sad thing is that there's been some sort of a hiccup with, with certifying her uh, credentials. So I don't know what's going on with that. It's going to be, it's going to be a little bit before she's here. The other problem for small rural communities like mine, especially ones that are a bit further removed from Edmonton, we don't have none of our doctors that work in our clinic here in town or in our hospital here in town, actually physically own a residence in Mayorthorpe. They have rental places out here. They come out, they do their shift at the clinic and or at the hospital. And then they return to the big city uh, where they own houses. So we don't have any doctors anymore that live in the community. We, we did used to have two, but both of them are retired now. So that's problem number one. Um, the other problem is lots of the nurses at our hospital are locums, which means they don't live in our community either. They come here to work and then they go home to wherever that is, Bruce Grove, Stony Plain, White Court, whatever. Um, and our EMS people in this town are much the same way. None of our EMS personnel live in Mayorthorpe. They come here for their shift and luckily our emergency uh, services building has got accommodations for them to be able to, to spend the night. But we've got paramedics in our town, EMS people in our town from as far away as Calgary. What? Yeah. Like they're, yeah. They, they, they commute from Calgary? They drive up here for a specified shift, two, three, four days long, however long it is, and sleep at the emergency um, response center where we have those accommodations. 
and then they drive home for their days off. Yep, you bet. Wow. To, the, for perspective, off the top of my head, that's that's like a four, four and a half, four hour drive approximately, right? Uh, four hours to Cochrane. If you live on the far side of Calgary, yeah, sure, probably sure. closer to five. Yeah, if you hit Calgary's rush hour, which is uh, it is legit. Calgary's rush hour. <laughs> Although people living in Seattle and Vancouver, uh, you know, and, and uh, Chicago are going to go really. Um, Mayor Jones uh, in in Legale, when, when we're talking about healthcare, I mean, we didn't. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you all about EMS because I knew that that advisory committee had been formed, and I and I, and I knew our audience would want an update. But but if you want to take this into the direction of family doctors too, like that's fascinating. Um, and Mayor Jay Bush has just reiterated something as well and it's not just medical professionals it's not just doctors uh, but also engineers and researchers and many others that 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 would make major contributions and want to make major contributions to the Canadian economy and the Canadian public service but their certification uh, or the procedure is, is standing in the way depending on their country of origin or, or where they receive their post-secondary education or that certification do you see that in legale as well I mean what are, what are some of the biggest challenges uh, facing your residents in the context of healthcare specifically? Well, thankfully, we now have a very wonderful doctor housed in town. Uh, he's joined us this past October, uh, and he brought with him a psychologist as well. So they are extremely busy, which also denotes the, the need for the service in, in smaller communities, uh, as our last doctor moved out of the community about 15 years ago. So we... We're so thankful for him to to join us, and he's been extremely busy. Mayor, what do you mean? Do you, are you saying that there has not been a family doctor in Legal for fifteen years? Am I understanding you correctly? That's correct. So, what have people been doing? Just traveling to other communities? Yeah, uh, Morinville, uh, Saint Albert, Redwater, Westlock, uh, pretty much wherever they can find a family doctor. And to put it mildly, there's an extreme shortage. Uh, out this way, uh, especially in small communities, the rurals, um, even in, in the ER departments, in the smaller hospitals, uh, where a doctor will, there have been cases where the doctors are in the hospital during the day and then running an on-call status at night. So if, the, for example, if the doctor is on call in Westlock, but he lives in Barhead, it could take upwards of an hour for him to be in the hospital if there's an emergency. So that's a very real prospect we're dealing with out here. Wow. Well, I, I would say, like, first of all, congratulations feels like a weird word to use. But <laughs> you want to say congratulations to communities that are able to attract a family doctor uh, because it's just such a big deal. And there's it seems to me uh, and this is an anecdotal observation, but it seems to me that fewer and fewer young savvy professionals that are graduating from medical school are feeling called to this particular direction because it's a tough slog and uh you know the funding model of family medicine is a tough one too i say this is the son of a family doctor and i know that that's something that we continue to look to address mayor jones you look like you might have a follow-up well i would say that you know thankfully we do have the doctor in town now and he's wonderful but i think you know running back to the emergency services, I think in smaller communities, uh, us, for example, um, I think that's more of a critical issue for us. Uh, AHS uh, dispatching our volunteer ambulance in 2013 and with the transition to Alberta Health Services delivering the service. Um, and we, we've seen some interesting developments. Um, our call volumes have mostly stayed the same, uh, except over the last couple of years where there has been a, an increase. Um, but the more significant 
change has been to the actual arrive on scene times. Uh, they say our median time is about 17 minutes, but the 90th percentile where most calls come in is about a half an hour. Mm. Uh, so we're talking about those serious critical care strokes, cardiac events, um, major accidents. And it's not only having an impact on our residents who need the service, but it's also impacting our volunteer fire department who are now uh, have now taken on the medical first responder program, which the town of Legale is paying for. And we have yet to see any response from AHS as far as reimbursement or consultation, especially when it comes to vehicle accidents on Highway 2 and 651, where unfortunately it's a dangerous intersection. So we have seen a very big call increase. And we've also seen stars land in town more often. Man, uh, it always feels tacky to talk about the cost of all of this, but that's, of course, kind of part of it. That's a huge part. You might argue that's the most significant part of it in talking about all this. I'm so I, I always take every opportunity I can. And thanks, Mayor, for for setting the table for me to pump stars because I'm so great. Two of my friends are literally alive because of stars. Two of them named Darren and Joel. They're both alive because of stars. And um, and and I'm so grateful for that service. But stars wouldn't be flying if it weren't for citizens that are buying calendars and donating and participating in the lottery. And I mean, even when you say like legal, or I'm sure that that Mayor J. Bush could say what Mayor Thorpe's paying for. Mayor Heron can explain to us what costs her community's picking up on. That's kind of been a theme uh, recently for Alberta municipalities is is incurring their own costs or taking on more costs. What you're also talking about is is mill rate increases, right? You're talking about property tax increases. Um, and although someone will jump in and they'll be right and they'll say there's only one taxpayer and whether it's provincial taxes going up or municipal taxes going up, it still means that taxes are going up for people that expect basic basic service delivery. Fair to say? Can I jump in on that one, Ryan? Yeah, please do, Mayor Heron. Yeah, I, that argument is always interesting, um, the one taxpayer argument, because the way the municipalities are forced to collect revenue is through property taxes. And you can have... You can have five people living in a home um, of the same value or one person living in the home of the exact same value. They're paying the same property taxes. So it's a very regressive form of taxation. So it, it, it hits us hard. So if you have a senior who's still managing to live in her $500,000 home by herself, um, she's paying a lot more than her neighbor in a $500,000 home with you know, two working parents and maybe you know a couple of kids with part-time jobs. You know, So it... The argument of one taxpayer is very frustrating for us at the local level because, you know, so St. Albert has equipped every one of our fire trucks with advanced care life support, which is, you know, it's a, it's a full on ambulance, except they can't transfer. And we pay, you know, highly trained, not just firefighters, but every one of them has at least a, a, a PCP or an advanced care paramedic um, designation. So we are paying more um, and, you know, our, Funding from the province has been cut on the capital side by 36%. So we have a list, a long list of, of downloaded. I hate the word downloading, but things that municipalities have stepped up to the plate and taken over when the provincial government does not fulfill their duties. If you so, wanted, to, if you wanted to get cheeky, Mayor, you could call it the trickle down costs, and then that would get that would certainly catch everybody's attention. Uh, Doctor Bradley Martin's watching this. He's a he's a GP, a, a family doctor out of beautiful Hinton, Alberta. Um, he says it's the UCP. He says I say this as a family doctor currently. He says the students and residents that I teach have less and less appetite to stay 
in Alberta. Uh, that's something that should concern every Albertan that's watching or listening to this. It's why we want to have these important conversations. Mayors, I want to acknowledge, I know I seem like I'm, I'm, I'm sort of clamping this or I'm cutting this conversation short where we could keep going, but we've asked you, we're already past the time we asked you to stick around for, and I know how mayor's schedules go, but I can't wrap the conversation without asking you about changes to the, to the MGA, the Municipal Government Act, because I know that this has had a huge impact on communities. And, and it's not just necessarily what it means in practice, but, but it's also... As they say, it's kind of the principle of it. Uh, to remind our audience, uh, the government of Alberta has amended the Municipal Government Act, um, and it's, in a way, or actually directly removed local government's ability to create public health bylaws. Uh, Mayor J. Bush, I saw you nodding your head enthusiastically as I was teeing this up, so I want to go to you first. Uh, what's your perspective on this, and how is it impacting your community? Where's your head at? Uh, um. I'm, to be honest, I'm gobsmacked by by some of what I've seen come out of this this provincial government. Uh, this latest thing with the uh, with the um, removal of of our ability to do those public health sorts of things, we've said all along, like from the beginning of the pandemic, municipalities in this province have said, "Let us figure out what what works best in our community," because the pandemic didn't hit every community the same. Like. Up in high level, for instance, they didn't see the, the percentage of positive cases that Edmonton did, simply because the population is not there. So we talked a lot about being able to, to find these ways to, to use data, and we, at, we begged for micro data for each community so that we could make those kinds of decisions, and it was never available to us. The town of Marathorpe struggled for a really long, and the debate in town was heated. The debate in my council chambers was heated about a mask bylaw. And we finally, because it didn't look like the province was going to do anything about it, we finally instituted a mask bylaw. And then about three weeks later, the province put one in place. But taking this ability away from the municipalities when we're the ones on the ground dealing with everything that's going on on a day-to-day -day basis that makes no sense to me it, talk about big brother i'm thinking i'm reliving my first reading of 1984 here hmm. mayor jones how about you I and mean, we can take this way past the whole COVID debate and masking and vaccines and everything. I, I think basically what it comes down to for me is the lack of consultation. They're essentially, uh, they disagreed with the big cities and therefore they changed the legislation. I think it seems that's a dangerous precedent uh, for, you know, governments moving forward. If a municipality disagrees with the province or uh, the province doesn't like something specific uh, that a, a town or a city is doing, boom, they change the legislation and, and we don't really have a say in the matter. I think, um, and, and this kind of encompasses all of our communications with the government, is we want to talk. We want to be a partner. We want to have that collaboration piece. But if it's only one-sided, it, it becomes very difficult. So I think that is the primary message we're, we need to send to the provincial government, is you need to talk to us before you change the all-encompassing legislation that governs how municipalities do business. So, Mayor Heron, do you get the sense that that message has been received by the province? And if so, how has it landed? I, do, I don't get the sense that they've heard. I mean, Minister McGavar is our municipal affairs, uh, and he... I do quite like him and he's very, he's a straight shooter. He will tell you the truth. And 
he defended that decision. And, and I, I need to say it wasn't that municipalities were stripped of their ability to do um, public health bylaws. It was very specific towards masks and vaccines. Uh, but that decision was based on political differences instead of good science and good governance. And it was very obvious. The province was not happy that Edmonton was considering keeping their masking in. And they didn't even give Edmonton the chance to debate it or and, and rescind. They just moved in. It was the fastest thing I've ever seen um, for legislation. They always tell us it takes forever to change the MGA, but they can do it when they want to in a heartbeat. But it, it was a political decision based on differences. And that is not a good way to govern a province. And as Trina said, um, all we have ever asked for is a level of respect. And you know, Bill 69, uh, the federal legislation about no more pipelines, Premier Kenny's been all over the news in the last few days talking about how the federal government is trespassing and overstepping their jurisdiction. Well, that's how we feel frequently. And this bill for on the masking was a perfect example of it. That's Mayor Kathy Heron, uh, the president of Alberta Municipalities. And we've been lucky enough to be joined as well by the director for Alberta Municipalities in Towns West and Towns East as well. Mayors Janet J. Bush and Mayor Trina Jones, uh, respectively, uh, out of Mayor Thorpe and Legal. Uh, you can learn more about what Alberta Municipalities are doing right now by checking out abmunis.ca, abmunis.ca. Of course, the work always continues behind the scenes. We're grateful for the three of you to get us back up to speed. As mentioned, we're thinking about this. We're talking about this as a team a while ago going, what's going on with that police force talk? What's happening with the EMS? And of course, we realize that when other events around the world happen, uh, these aren't always the ones leading the headlines. It doesn't mean that they're not incredibly important impacting our communities. So thank you for the work behind the scenes. And thanks for the work in front of the cameras as well. Doing this show this morning, Mayors. Uh, wish you a good rest of your week. Thanks for having us. You got to you got to note that we've got uh, three very strong women mayors in this room. So thanks to my colleagues for stepping up. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. Thanks very much. That's Mayor Kathy Heron, uh, Janet J. Bush, and Trina Jones as well. We always want to know how you're feeling about this. I mean, I can see a lot of the comments, and and it's great when you provide perspectives for us from your own communities. Right, you're saying here's what's going on in my neck of the woods, or here's how this is impacting us. It gives us a great perspective of where the audience is at and, and how these issues are manifesting themselves. Now, there, this has been a wild show. John, you get a bonus. We're, gonna, we're buying you lunch today for, I, what, for, for this. This has been pedal to the metal today. We haven't even got to some of the top stories. We've got so much that we're going to have to push to tomorrow. But the one thing that amazed me is that a small town didn't have a doctor for 15 years. 15 years? Like, I was just... That, it amazes me. And I always drive through these rural places in Alberta, and I wonder... Like, where is the hospital? Where is the physicians? Where is the dentist? And uh, that, that just, it may, my jaw dropped when I heard that. Well, th and this, I mean, the reality, and I'm stating the obvious here, is that, you know, for example, for a lot of people that live in rural areas, the trade-off is you get, like, the peace and the quiet sometimes. Yeah. Um, sometimes there's, there's, uh, you know, challenges that come with, with rural crime and all that, uh, with living out there, but, but kind of the bigger picture is you can do your thing. You have more space. There, mm -hmm. There's kind of the luxuries that come with, with stepping outside of so-called urban living, but the trade-offs as well yeah. are that police response might be 45 minutes or an hour and a half that an ambulance is a ways away that if something happens, if there's a farm accident or if, if there's a, whatever, a cardiac arrest, a stroke, whatever, uh, that that really 
uh, you're not going to have an ambulance at your door in four minutes. No. I mean, we've got fire trucks that are showing up to houses in the city in three minutes, yeah. six minutes. That's not happening if you live in a lot of these places. No, and one of my wife's dreams is to like live out in the country and you know have a have a pet sanctuary and all this. But I'm like, there's no veterinarian. Like, where are you going to take a pet or a person if they're sick? Yeah, uh, out in some of these places. So I was like, dead. I think they're dead on that. They need more help. They need more support. Although I've seen on some of the, the the farms I've had a chance to visit, the the rural veterinarian yeah, game of, is of fascinating. Yeah. Some of them have their own big, like they're like big fifth wheels and they roll in. They have their own big yeah. trailers and it's fascinating <laughs> stuff. They can do all the exams on site and everything. What an amazing line of work. We do have the luxury uh, with this show of, of, of going a little. There's not really so, such a thing as overtime because we don't really have an end time. So I am going to. We're going. Well, I want to stretch the show a little long because there's a couple things I want to mention. And I don't want to. I'm not going to push the leaders debate till tomorrow. We have to talk about what Jugmeet Singh yeah, encountered in to. Peterborough. But but I also but also and I didn't know we were going to talk family docs with the mayors today. Um, I did know I wanted to ask them about ambulances, but but I did because it's it's like World Family Doctor Day. Mm hmm. A World Family Doctor Week, it's coming up. I'll, I'll clarify. I'll get all the details. The son of a family doc should know better. But it, it, it is coming up. And so I, we've been collecting some elements behind the scenes. We always want to bring you quality programming every day. And so I did have this, but let's go to it now instead. Um, I don't know this person. Do you know who this person is? You just no. got really, you looked excited. Uh, but is, I saw this tweet. Yeah. yeah, you did see this before. Mm -hmm. This is from Dr. Hurling. Uh, if you want to look it up yourself, H E. Double R L I N G, Dr. Hurling. Uh, I don't know her personally. Uh, she says, I'm a family doctor in BC. I see 30 to 40 patients per day, no lunch or coffee breaks, maybe time for a quick run to the bathroom, followed by a few hours of paperwork, charting, lab results, imaging reports, consults, insurance forms, pharmacy queries, urgent calls, etc. After dinner, kids' baths and bedtime stories. And then I'm back to the computer at 8 p.m. to chip away at paperwork till midnight. All that work from 2.30 to midnight is unpaid. Days are very long. Time away is hard to find. Family medicine locums, like sort of fill-in docs, docs that can come in and help you out, uh, they become scarce in recent years. Without a locum, you have no one to see your patients, check results, or help you cover the many thousands of dollars you pay in overhead every month. And it's particularly difficult if you happen to be having a baby. It's nearly impossible to find locum coverage. And when you have no income, this is, she gets really personal here. She says, when you have no income, but you still have to pay your staff and cleaning people and tech support, and you have to purchase syringes and casting material and gloves and everything else in our offices, well, it becomes very hard to take time with your baby. Like all of us at my clinic, says Dr. Hurling, I worked through the pandemic. I was pregnant through much of it, swabbing scared, sick patients while nervously hoping that the layers of PPE that intensified my morning sickness were keeping my baby safe. She says, I lost two of those babies miscarrying while continuing to work. There are so few locums and patients still need care, whether you're losing your baby or not. There's no sick leave, no mental health days. So you miscarry while you break bad news, check blood pressures, diagnose other pregnancies. Can you imagine? Mm. She says, I became pregnant again. A month before my baby was due, it was clear that I would have no locum. And the time that I'd have at home with my baby would be very short. My friend and colleague was also pregnant, due just before me. Devastatingly, she lost her beautiful baby in labor. And the locum she had managed to find became my locum. And it's absolutely heartbreaking that this is the only reason I have a few months home with my little son. It's wrong that we cannot find coverage when we're sick, mourning, or have just had a baby. And the reason that we have no locums is the same reason that we have fewer and fewer family doctors. $31.62, that's what 
GPs, family docs can bill in BC before tax for an exam, $31.62. It's not much when you lose 30 to 40% to overhead. And it's far, far less when you consider the vast number of unpaid hours that keep us from our families and our sleep. And I thought that was an amazing perspective Incredible. check. Yeah. It's just, and then when uh, the mayors were also talking about how, you know, they they had a doctor, but he retired. They had a doctor, but she retired. It seems like that would be the way. I know in these rural communities, and people are commenting, a lot of them don't have doctors, and you're just kind of on your own. But, like, if you try to attract a doctor, they're probably older in age. They probably want a quieter life. And then they're only there, what, 10, 15 years max, and then they're gone again. And uh, Janet saying they had to, like, import Someone from the States? Like, yeah. That's just... Well, and there's there's been a lot of doctors that have been coming over from other countries, and it's been a great talent pool to draw from, but you have to still make it appealing for these doctors to come. Yeah. So whether it's salary, quality of life, affordability in a housing market, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you've got to... You're, you're trying to draw the best and brightest. Yeah. Right? Let's talk about... Let's talk. get back to this, <laughs> this leaders debate. I mean, it was obviously a lot of people were paying attention. Conservatives across the country paying attention. This was the first official uh, English language leaders debate at the Edmonton Convention Center in our home city just last night. And it, it was uh, unique from the previous one in that everybody, all of the leadership candidates participated, including Patrick Brown. He was there, but really still... Uh, and, and, and the candidate Aitchison had something to say, and I want to get to him in just a second, but really... Really, and maybe it's not fair for me to say, but this is just from 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 my seats, from the cheap seats. What I'm noticing is this is this is coming down to a showdown between Pierre Poliev and Jean Charest. That's, that's what it is. That's yeah. kind of what it's and coming Leslie down Lewis to. And Leslie Lewis kind of poking her head in every now but and then, Leslie, but she's she's so focused on the the life issue, pro life and whatever, which is it's just is she so focused on it from or the other issues? Are people so focused on her position? I'm not saying it's irrelevant. It's in the news, and it's that's why absolutely she's relevant. At it, but yeah. it's just like they're. Tra- they're trying to talk about another issue and she Puglia, Puglia. well she wants to she wants to get Give us your take she wants and- to turn this into a, a conversation or a competition with Pierre Poliev on, 100%. on who is the most legit social conservative yes who who showed the most support for the Ottawa occupation and then Pierre's doing that back to Sheree and it's like can we just like talk about anything else and get all your views on one other thing so, so Jean Sheree wants to paint Pierre Poliev into a corner as a pro-lifer, as mm-hmm. someone who will pursue legislation that would interfere with a woman's right to choose or make her own choices on her own reproductive health options in Canada. Well, did Pierre he not Polyev once vote night, on something? Well, Jean, so we'll tee this up, but, but it was interesting last night because Pierre Poliev finally said a Poliev government would not introduce legislation that would he interfere because he had to say something. Uh, but this is where things got a little bit heated, and I have to say... I'm pretty sure that Pierre Polyev scored a few points here. Shots fired. But Mr. Charest, Mr. Charest, why didn't you take a moment to acknowledge that you're the only one on this stage who actually voted for, for a law that would recriminalize abortion when you were part of the Mulroney government? You did. You did. And you can take a moment now to renounce your earlier vote uh, if you've changed your mind, but that was your position. You seem to have forgotten it. You've forgotten a lot of things about your record. You forgot that you brought in a carbon tax. You forgot that you raised the fuel tax, the sales tax, the health tax. You forgot that you banned, uh, you banned natural gas development in your own province. You forgot you brought in a long gun registry. You seem a little bit forgetful about your record, Mr. Charest, but Canadians now remember. I... No, 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 no. You know, you guys know the rules. You know the consequences, Mr. Charest, 30 seconds. I, I, I am very proud of my record as a conservative, 
that stands on its own merits, on fiscal conservatism, on reducing the size of government, reducing taxes, which I did when I was Premier, by the way. Quebecers had lower, a billion dollars less taxes paid and higher disposable income after I finished in government, ladies and gentlemen. And by the way, Mr. Poilievre, thank you for at least now telling us that you are pro-choice. We understand Ooh. that's what you're saying tonight. Please confirm okay. that. Tom Clark, you were you were laughing. I just Tom Clark last night. He was getting so annoyed. At one point, he said, "Like uh, Pierre said, can I respond to that?" And he was like, "If you raise your paddle, like he was like, <laughs> but you gotta he you want to like, you want to give and, and and he had the crosshairs on him with a lot of the sort of the more right wing of the conservatives because uh, yeah. there there was that conservative media outlet whose founder had taken aim at Tom Clark, upset mm-hmm. that there was no Albert. He was upset that they were flying out a liberal, yeah. as Ezra Levant referred to him. They're flying out a liberal to moderate moderate the debate because apparently nobody in Alberta is up for the task. I mean, had I not been moderating the Chancellor's Forum on Artificial Intelligence at the (laughs) University of Alberta put on by the Chancellor Garrity and the University of Alberta Senate, perhaps I would have been eager to jump to the task, but I don't know if I would have passed that litmus test. Uh, I thought Tom did a, did, did a decent job, but I also thought that it was pretty, I mean, he's got that amazing voice, the former TV journalist. Yeah. Um, but it was pretty funny. He was sort of like, you know that he, he was like the, 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 the father that's supervising that if you totally, the, the, you know what, kids, I'm going to turn this car around. Dad moves all night long. He didn't this, like that the, the audience was hooping and hollering, and but Pierre Poliev, the reason, one of the reasons why we wanted to use that clip is the the audience, the raucous applause from for Pierre Poliev. And then Josh Ray, who comes across some some I heard him described by one of the pundits last night as, as having that statesman type quality. He is. He deliver these big blows and then crickets. Yeah, I, the, not, I, I don't support. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything about any of the candidates and me having opinions the same as them. But just Sheree, I feel like he's calm and he, he delivers a clear message and then. nothing happens and it's like uh pierre just he yells so much and some of his arguments are very reductive and he just gets these huge ovations and i'm like he he just said the same thing over and over and over but he's very intelligent as well one of the things i think that people are going to have to ask and that conservatives are going to want to ask i mean you're you're choosing the leader that will take you into the next federal election and what qualities does that leader need to have and with pierre poliev who who obviously scored a few points with his you forgot this you forgot this you forgot this at the same time begs the question can he be an effective leader can he be a collaborator mm-hmm. can he demonstrate the qualities that canadians want to see in their next prime minister without infusing that tension without infusing the conflict right without 100%. seeking those moments where he can land the blow and i think that on the flip side that's what jean Charest is trying to demonstrate mm-hmm. with how he's presenting himself in these debates don't we want someone calm I, I don't want someone who's like i told you so and i know you are but what am i i want someone who's very calm and meticulous with their thinking so and and i i think pierre can be like that at times but then other times he's just like it's like he's in a boxing match or something yeah it's like I, you're all on the same team here you know yeah, that right that's like, the weird that's the interesting <laughs> thing about whether it's in the united states republican democratic primaries or whether it's in canada with leadership races of parties you've got all these candidates i've always thought it's such a strange dynamic they pile on each other and they mm-hmm. talk about why the other person is such a lousy option and then if or when that other person wins, then all of a sudden it's like, and we move forward as a party and then they have my full support, right? You spend all this time talking about why they're horrific liabilities uh, unless they win, in which case we've all got to get behind them. 
Jillian took the time to let us know after our conversation, our exclusive with Jean Charest just a short time ago. You can find it on our YouTube and podcast archives. I recommend you check it out. It was a good conversation. Jillian let us know that she actually bought a membership, uh, a conservative party membership after hearing that interview on Real Talk. And wow. so her follow up email caught my attention. Uh, she wrote into talk at RyanJesperson.com, says I was uh, seriously considering going to tonight's debate as a newly minted conservative party member. I figured they might have free snacks, uh, plus maybe some merch like a fuck Trudeau sticker that I could put on my truck. I think she might be kidding. She says, but in all seriousness, says Jillian, I just felt bad that there was a good chance that Leslie Lewis might be the only black person in the room. I don't agree with her on much, but I could have shown up for a sister, says Jillian. Uh, anyway, I chose not to. And thank goodness, because hearing those good old boys clapping for Pierre Polyev, heckling, booing Charé, I definitely feel like watching from my living room was the best call. She says, my top highlights of the night were Leslie Lewis butchering Polyev's name. The French debate will be amusing. Yeah. Uh, she says, Polyev, uh, uh, Pierre Polyev rather being an epic coward by choosing to debate Patrick Brown on the issue of illegal protests. Uh, number two, Josh Ray being an epic badass by choosing to debate Polyev on the issue of the future of the party. And the number one, she says, for me was Pierre not getting to speak for ages, like 10 minutes, because he had no self-control, used all five of his rebuttals in the first couple minutes of the final debate section. That was hilarious. All in all, says Jillian, a real talker, I enjoyed the debate. I gained extra respect for all the candidates uh, except for Pierre Polyev. Hmm. Why? She says, simply because... He was the only candidate who gave completely disingenuous answers during the get to know you section. And you knew that this was going to come up. Jillian says, we learned fun stuff about everybody that really humanized them. Sheree uh, said that it kind of weirded him out. Yeah. My words, not his. But he said he, he said he said the debate format was unusual. He said we didn't expect so many personal questions. Uh huh. Uh, back to Jillian's email, though, she says it humanized them. But then there's Pierre Polyev saying like he's reading Jordan Peterson oh. and he's binge watching shows on the evils of communism. She says it sounds like fun times at the Polyev home. I'd rather watch Bridgerton with Leslie Lewis <laughs> or Married with Children with Baber. Baber. Baber's got to get a new barber. That's one thing I'll say. I don't mean to sound yeah. surface and shallow, but that guy, if that guy wants to be taken seriously, he's got to get a new barber. Jillian says not sure how the French debate will top this. Um, especially as conservative candidates often speak French with the proficiency of eight-year-olds in French immersion. Sheree uh, will be sounding Quebecois as heck, while the others, will they even understand him? I don't know. Hopefully Pierre pa practices a little bit and loses the Google translation vibes. <laughs> Jillian says, all in all, 10 days into being a conservative party member, I'm having a blast. I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts. We're in overtime. This is great. Great email and so many good points in there. And uh, you, you brought up Brown. I feel like he's the fourth. He's he's trying to get in there and same thing crickets. He, last night he had a he had some point he made and then he was like full stop as if he wanted to say like who was it uh in the states who was like clap now at the end of their speech. oh Jeb Bush <laughs> yeah. Jeb Bush it was like, like that would he say something yeah. like it'd be great if you could clap now or yeah. something like clap that he now, just please. wasn't feeling the love I think Scott Aitchison is catching a few people's attention mm. uh, the MP that I don't think he's going to win this thing but a lot of people are saying we kind of like the way he presents himself we like the way that he rolls sure. Uh, we can't talk federal politics without talking uh, about what uh, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh encountered in Peterborough yesterday. Why don't we roll the video? There's some strong language in this. There's already been some strong language in today's show, so I'm sure that everybody's going to be okay. But this is absolutely brutal. Um, you want to call it a campaign stop or what have you, but Jagmeet Singh's there meeting with folks, and he runs into some of these freedom convoy demonstrators, and, and here's how it all played out. <laughs> I 
Freedom convoy, go fuck yourself. Well, there's there's peers, people right there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is like when you when you talk about the freedom convoy, and and again, like Jean Charest tries to reiterate this. Uh, yesterday, he's saying, "I'm not saying you don't have the right to protest. I'm not saying whatever." He goes, "But this illegal occupation is this," and I think uh, this. I mean, the guy spells it out, and someone's going to say, "Well, that's not all of us." I mean, I participated in the convoy, or I supported the convoy because we need to get back to work, or because I believe that I should be able to make my personal health decisions. But when it comes down to it, that's the face of the Freedom Convoy right there. People are going, where was his security, by the way? Uh, the yeah. police in Peterborough saying there were no calls for service at the time. The police at one point yesterday were claiming they didn't know Jigmeet Singh was appearing. Well, this is like a weekday. This isn't even like a rally or anything. Like he's being followed around now. That's it's too far for me. I, I'm all for free speech. I'm all for calling your government on stuff. But this is like. There, there's a lot of people in Canada, uh, like millions of people that are going to suggest that Jagmeet saying they don't think that he has a good handle on this or they don't appreciate his policy on that or they're not going to vote for him. Their views are aligned. But at the same time, saying this is absolutely unacceptable, like absolutely unacceptable. If that's not threatening, I don't know what threatening is. For those of you that are just hearing this on the podcast, that guy dropping F-bomb after F-bomb, yeah. he's he's holding up his middle finger. He's shaking his fist right to the, as, as Jagmeet Singh gets in with the escort of it, it appeared to be one staffer. One guy. One guy who kind of gets him into the SUV and gets that door closed. And, and Mr. Singh, I, I don't even know what I would do in that circumstance. And I'm not a person of color. I'm not a person who's wearing uh, a, you know, a, a religious symbol. Like, I mean, I'm sure that he has encountered shit like this for his entire life. 100%. But caught on camera, uh, getting a sense of, of the threatening nature of all this, it prompted, I mean, obviously outcry from people across the political spectrum in Canada. Why don't we take a look at just a couple of the messages? Uh, Julie Lalonde, who does a ton of work uh, out of Ottawa, I recommend you check her out. Follow her on Twitter. She says, all those people that were, yeah, but did those rocks even hit you, Mr. Trudeau? Remember the pebbles yeah. that were thrown yeah. at Justin Trudeau a while back? She says, all those journalists that are now acting horrified by what Jack Mead experienced? Julie says, I see you. She says, every single solitary time that we make excuses for the harassment politicians get for simply doing their job we actively enable these ruthless mobs and julie says and to think it's not even election season check is out there just doing his job on yeah. a random weekday and this is the vitriol we've normalized this was another one from scott aitchison he's a candidate right now for the leadership of the conservative party he says this vitriol is corrosive for our politics and it's bad for the country politics by intimidation has no place in canada our leaders need to work together to overcome these divisions, not stoke the flames further dividing us. And this one from Kurt Phillips, who does a lot of anti-racism work in Canada. You can follow him on Twitter at ARC Collective. That's A-R-C Collective. This is a big thread, but I just pulled one of his observations out. Uh, he says this is very much a problem on the political right. And if people like Pierre Poliev, who continues to defend the Ottawa occupation, or Max Bernier, of course, leader of the People's Party of Canada, continue to refuse to condemn this behavior, it will continue and it will escalate. And I like what you said. Like, I felt uncomfortable watching this video, and I feel like 
a few of these people were holding back some much worse things they were going to say. And if you go back, if you're watching the podcast, go back to when the video, when he first walks out, a guy leans in and whispers something in his ear. You can't hear what he says, but I can only imagine like this was just is really scary. Stuff. So telling him to get out of Canada, people are something, calling him a yeah. traitor. No, no. Ostensibly, this uh, has to do with the NDP propping up this liberal government, right? Like the deal that the NDP struck with the liberals to achieve some of their objectives, you know, like pharmacare and dental care and all of the things that we're going to see happen, we expect uh, in this most recent budget and budgets to come means that the prime minister will stay in office without threat of an election or a loss of confidence until 2025. That's that's kind of the idea. And that's what I assume the whole traitor thing is all about. Uh, it goes without saying that this has hit a point, a boiling point that demands to be addressed. And that's why this show will continue to talk about it with your input as well. Linda's watching live right now. She nails it. She says the blind rage coming from these people is uh, truly frightening. Marie says the anger in today's society uh, is truly scary. Justin says, listen to that Hatred. I, 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 I don't even know if I should read this from Justin, but I don't I don't disagree with him. But he says uh, it's only a matter of time before one of these people, let me just say, brings a weapon to one of these events. Right. And and, and you sort of I was say, really scared when you start video, talking about escalation, yeah. like with with the the, the the temperature of where that was at yesterday, what's an escalation look like? And these people, they weren't using like arguments or opinions. They were not. using their fingers, their fists. They were inches from Yagmeet's face. Uh, I was I was very surprised like somebody didn't push or at least shove or, or something would and then, happen. And yeah. then what happens, right? Once it starts to get physical, right? One, once there's one punch thrown or whatever, I mean, you think you think back to, to incidents where one small things happen, one small thing happens with an angry mob and then all of a sudden it's just domino effect. the domino effect, right? Jagmeet Singh did release a statement uh, last night. Uh, he said... Uh, to those who have asked, I'm in Chardi Kala, rising spirits. He says, I want to say, especially to the people of Peterborough, I visited many times. I know your community is filled with good people who want the best for each other. Sadly, polarization, disinformation are real dangers in our society. He went on to say politicians must remember the consequences when they stoke fear and division. When hate is given space to grow, it spreads like wildfire. Went on to say that's why we must always confront it, giving it no space to take hold, no room to grow. Peterborough, I love you. Don't worry, I'll be back. That from Jagmeet Singh yesterday. Unbelievable stuff. Uh, you don't have to be an NDP supporter to respect the hell out of how he handled how that. How calm was he? Uh, like I would have. I would imagine partially. I, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I don't. I mean, he strikes me as a guy that's he's got a good self confidence. Center. You've got to. <laughs> you've got to go in. I mean, it, it's it's fight or flight mode at that point, and you don't know. You know you have an escort behind you. You have one person behind you. You don't know if someone's going to throw a bottle at you. But you don't know if someone's going to put their hands yeah. on you. He's smiling. He's thanking people for being well, there while trying. they're yelling at him. He's saying, thank you for coming out and expressing your opinion while they're, yeah, craziness. Corey says, I'd be more concerned with what elections might look like moving forward. We promise you we'll continue to have these conversations. We've gone literally an hour longer than we were supposed to. But it was just one of those days. You and I were talking about it as we were having our coffee this morning. There was so much to cover. Much. Chris Boozy, we wanted to talk bots, and he was only available today. The the, the Ukraine fundraiser, the St. Javelin thing, it Christian. just launched this morning. We had a chance for that five minutes with Christian. Then, of course, we wanted to get you caught up on that dynamic municipal and provincial politicians. We've still got a lot to come tomorrow. Before I get to that, let me remind you, our friends at Dairy Queen, Baseline Road in Sherwood Park, and our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton. Yeah, you can find a brick and mortar. That's where you get your blizzards and your ice cream cakes and, and all of those fabulous signature stack burgers. 
You can also find him on Instagram. Go ahead and track him down. The Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton, one account, Dairy Queen Baseline with the other. I love this. Their most recent post, boom, treats are in bloom. They've got their spring and summer treats ready to rock at the Dairy Queens of Baseline Road in Sherwood Park. That's Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount in Edmonton. And while you're out in Sherwood Park, uh, do you grab the, you, you probably grab the Blizzard after you test drive the new Jeep Grand Cherokee, right? Would you say? <laughs> Maybe not before. Give yourself something to look forward to after you discover your brand new ride at Sherwood or St. Albert Dodge. They've got those Jeep Grand Cherokees, the redesigned ones, including the Grand Cherokee L with the third row of seating for the first time in the history of America's biggest selling SUV. The Grand Wagoneer also, people are talking about it. Jeep's re-entry into the full-size luxury class going head-to-head against the X5s, the Navigators, the Escalades, the Yukons. Make sure you check out those Wagoneers. Absolutely beautiful. Now, coming up tomorrow, of course, our friends at Local Environmental present Trash Talk. You have a chance to get whatever you need off your chest. It's a quick email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We'll be featuring those. And we've had this circled on our calendar for quite some time. Conservative leadership race, Jason Kenney's leadership review, and more. We sit down with Zane, Corey, and Stephen, better known as the strategists that's our real talk roundtable coming up on friday may 13th we thank you in advance for joining us then make it a great thursday friends and we'll talk to you soon real talk is hosted by ryan jesperson Technical producer, John Hicks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Lawrence Derlego. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.